Welcome to our Founders Lecture Series. In 1982, Inabara began classes in Bengal with just 86 students and 11 staff. Fast forward 40 years and the school has experienced incredible change and growth, welcoming almost 1,200 students and more than 150 staff each day. This series honours a small group of pioneers whose vision led to what Inabara has become today. And this year, we explore the theme of art, beauty, and the transcendent. In these live recordings, you'll hear a range of special guests, as well as Inabara's principal, Dr. James Peach. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone. It's great to see you here for the very first of our Founders Lectures. I'm delighted that you could join us this evening and engage with our school community as we look to explore the theme of art, beauty, and the transcendent. As we begin this lecture series, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Dharawal people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. On this land, they taught their children their beliefs, knowledge, and culture, and we pay our respects to them as we seek to do the same. And as we gather on these ancestral lands, we also acknowledge our God and Heavenly Father who made the heavens and the earth and to whom we are responsible for the current stewardship of this land. I'd like to welcome various people who are here tonight, members of the board, Robert Dougal, the chair of the board, who's here, uh, Alison Wolfe, Philip Herman, David Sadler, Stephen Russell. Welcome also to Brett Hookham, the pastor of Menai Baptist, who I saw earlier, and other members of Menai Baptist Church who have joined us this evening, including Paul Cochran, who used to be the head of junior school here at Inneborough. As well, we've got Alan Dawson here from Richard Johnson Anglican College. So, Alan, you are most welcome. Thank you for coming. As well, I'd like to acknowledge those founders who are here this evening as well. Those members of the Menai Baptist Church community who established Inneborough School on this site 40 years ago. It is in honour of these pioneers that we have called this series the Founders Lectures. It was their vision and ongoing commitment to building this school community which have seen Inabara School flourish and thrive. Today, there are almost 1,200 students here each day, a far cry from the 86 students who were here on day one. We continue to enjoy an enviable reputation within our wider community as a school that provides a strong academic program many and varied opportunities for our students in the creative and performing arts, and most importantly, a holistic, integrated, and theologically grounded vision of humanity that informs our approach to learning and well-being. Well, it's a great privilege for me now to introduce our lecturer, Dr. Greg Clark. We did first meet as teenagers in Moree, where we shared a love of music and a desire to follow Jesus. And music and Christian belief have been intertwined throughout much of Greg's life. He has written extensively about both, often exploring the connection between them. And tonight, he will explore this connection once again. Greg has a PhD from the University of Sydney, in which he examined the writings of Patrick White. He has held multiple roles throughout his working life at New College, Macquarie University, Anglicare, the Centre for Public Christianity, and the Bible Society. And Greg is currently the CEO of the Australian Institute of Music, as well as the chair of the City Bible Forum. He's written hundreds of articles and published a number of books, including The Great Bible Swindle, which was awarded the Australian Christian Book of the Year in 2013. He's been willing to engage in the public square on a wide range of issues, many of which relate to the place of Christian belief within modern society. He also has an encyclopedic knowledge of popular culture, particularly music. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Greg Clark to address us this evening. Music is the 
good evening, everybody. It's a delight to be here tonight, and I feel very honoured to be able to deliver the uh, first uh, Founders Lecture for Innerborough School. And I'm glad we could begin with that song by Baker Boy, because it pulls together many of the things I want to talk about with you this evening. A national survey that was conducted in uh, 2019 BC, that is before COVID, found that 98% of Australians are engaged in the arts. It's safe to say that that is more than the number of us who are involved in sport, much more. Music is our most popular form of entertainment, our most popular art form. 48% of us attend live music events like concerts or festivals or performances, and 92% of us listen to music on one device or another, and that number's gone up dramatically in the era of streaming. And yet, the image of Australians is often as a sports-crazed nation. The novelist Patrick White famously wrote that sport could sink us, he said, because so many Australians think of nothing else. But White was wrong. The stats don't prove him true. For all his wise caution about the Australian tendency to cultural blandness or what he called muscles and machinery, we're almost all, 98%, engaged in the arts to some extent. And as the Baker Boy clip demonstrates, sport and the arts are often increasingly bedfellows or at least travelling companions. Nevertheless, the arts do occupy a somewhat awkward or contested or suspect place in some Australian cultures. We certainly don't mind the arts in the background, music in our shopping centres, murals on our buildings, paintings in our banks. But we struggle more when the arts come into the foreground, they come into focus, they come into our attention, they require our reflection. We can be a little suspicious of the artist, perhaps someone who is not quite normal or not properly occupied or, you know, get a real job. Don't choose a degree in the arts unless you want to work at McDonald's. These are the jokes you hear. Don't take it all too seriously. And perhaps that's where the problem is best diagnosed because there is a seriousness to art. It feels to some extent in some way special, a little disturbing maybe, a bit concerning. Something special is taking place in the arts. And people often feel weird when they're around a songwriter or an artist, a painter or a novelist or a filmmaker, like sometimes the way they feel around a priest. There's something sort of going on around their work, if we can call it work. And even if it's light, shoe-tapping, entertaining, it's special kind of work. Art seems to close in on something. It closes in on meaning, on depth, on significance. Art seems to get closer to the soul. Stories suggest that life is more than random. Movies suggest that life is perhaps something magical. Music suggests life is more important, more significant. Even in an ad for Fox Sports, we can feel the music undergirding questions, serious questions, about racism, about Indigenous rights, about equal opportunity. Just some of the lyrics that you may not have heard when you were uh, watching that and listening to it. There's a lyric in there about the breakdown of class demographics where Baker Boy talks about connect with the sound, people over income. It's an odd thing to hear in a hip hop song really, isn't it? That's the depth of seriousness that we're hearing. Or on respecting ancient culture, there's a lyric there that says, you better come correct if you're knocking at the kingdom. And on welcoming different abilities, one of the kind of delightful lines I love in, in the song is, you got a neck brace, no problem. Yeah? You got two left feet, can't catch that beat. We can all dance, we can all celebrate together. So these are quite serious sort of underpinnings for a, uh, a hip hop song. 
Singing in both English and his heart language of Yolnu, Baker Boy did more than write a hit. He demonstrated the power of a song. As the title states, music is the medicine, healing, strengthening, changing, drugging, influencing the listener. But I'm not a First Nations person and I'm not young. I'm older than your school. My musical tastes were shaped earlier, somewhere between the late 70s and early 90s. You can tell from what I listened to in the car, that's, that's where they were shaped. Those adolescent and early adult years when a lot of our cultural formation occurs. That time of life that students here at the school are in. They will have their playlists, I have mine. And the two musicians I want to highlight in this lecture, after outlining a bit of philosophical theology, are you 2 singer Bono, and the Australian musical artist Nick Cave. I recognise not all of you may be fans or even know about these artists, but for me, they've been an important part of my journey, and I want to explore that with you. But first, some thoughts about music, creation, and human striving. In his 2012 book, the Talking Heads singer David Byrne imagines the beginning of the world, and he refers to it as a really, really big sound. In the beginning was the word, says the book of Genesis, and Byrne imagines this as a sonic event where the sound of God's voice causes nothing to become something. It's a lovely way to think about creation because we know that music does in fact create something. Sounds arranged well communicate meaning, generate emotions, tell a story and motivate us to act. They're powerful and musical sounds are arguably the most powerful sounds of all. Byrne takes it further to outline how the early scientists, such as Pythagoras and later Johannes Kepler, each saw musical notes and scales and harmonies as corresponding with mathematical patterns, with biological forms, and even with cosmology itself. You might say the universe plays the blues, writes Byrne. The theologian David Bentley Hart points out this same idea of what he calls harmony mundi, the harmony of the world, the rhythm, the melody, the harmony of creation as a way of bringing glory to God, like a well-performed symphony brings glory to the composer through the extraordinary and pleasing efforts of the orchestra and the conductor. Hart thinks that J.S. Bach is the most godlike of all composers, a position which is often taken by philosophically-minded theologians. Why? primarily because of Bach's extraordinary capacity for order. Hart says that Bach has, quote, limitless capacity to develop separate lines into extraordinary intricacies of contrapuntal complication without ever sacrificing the peace, the measures of accord by which music is governed. Beauty out of complex, dynamic diversity. Satisfaction and transporting joy from the reconciliation of musical differences like the pleasure found within the multimodal trinity itself, says Hart. Now, those who love Mozart with his playfulness and his whimsy may beg to disagree, and famously, the theologian Karl Barth was among them. But the analogy is potent, isn't it? That music can somehow express that inner nature of God himself. Jeremy Begbie, another theologian of the arts, in his book, Resounding Truth, outlines several important theological principles for understanding how music fits into a Christian view of reality. To start with, Christians, and all monotheist religions actually, believe that God and the world are different things, distinct substances. The world is not divine, and God is not summed up by the world or, or the universe. And this means that the world owes something to God, not the other way around. The world owes something to God, not God to the world. God is the creator. The world, including human beings, is the creation. 
the creatures. And the creation depends on the creator and should give thanks and praise to the creator for its existence. This piece of theology, important, gives a rationale and a reason for music, for human music, for music of all creation. It's more than simply the arrangement of the elements of the world in diverse and pleasing or maybe confronting sounds. It is in fact a gift returning to the giver, an offering of wonder, of joy, of relief. Also along with inquiry, prayer, petition, even lament or anger or frustration. It's a song sung to the creator, or at least because of the creator. We have music because God created it, not just because. For Christians, music has a rationale. I love the way the Bible expresses this in several places, referring to creation and the creatures responding to with music to the creator. Just to give you four examples, Moses sings a song of triumphant praise to God when his enemies, the Egyptian tyrants, drown in the Red Sea as the Israelites escape slavery. And I'm imagining that song as something between like a kind of combination of Rage Against the Machine and Mala as that kind of dramatic event took place and he's praising God for victory. The future King David sang a song of gratitude for God rescuing him from his crazed and jealous father-in-law, the current King Saul. Solomon, the next king, penned an epic love song, the Song of Songs in the Bible, about two lovers with more than a hint of a parallel of the love between human beings and their God. And then Mary's song at the beginning of the gospel on when she learns that she's carrying the Saviour, known as the Magnificat, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. She actually speaks this song to her cousin Elizabeth, but it's received in scripture as a song and has become one of the great lyrics of choral music across the last 700 or, or so years. So the Bible is replete with these examples of music giving back to the creator. Begbie's second point is that the world is created with a purpose in mind. It's not a mere idle occurrence or an accident by God. The creation actually exists to flourish towards its end. The world has an order to it, one which enables musical phenomena such as melody or harmony or musical progression and resolution. But this order isn't static, it's dynamic. The world is growing, changing, being recreated all the time. And human beings are the most prolific and inventive of the creatures when it comes to this recreativity. What's more, Christians believe that because Jesus has revealed to us the richness of God's purposes in the world, we have a powerful and quite detailed mental picture of where the world is headed. We don't have it in the form of a movie of the future or every detail revealed, but we do have it in the belief that Jesus rose from the dead with all the implications of such a, an incredible event for the creation itself. Now, this is known as teleological, the purpose of life. It's also known as eschatological, knowing where we're going to head because God has revealed it to us. And these two elements of purpose provide music with a further purpose. It's part of the overall journey of human beings, indeed of all creation in history, towards the end goal described in the Christian faith. Music can serve as a medium for that journey or as a conveyor of the meaning of that journey or even as the proto-experience of the end state itself. By that I mean that music can create a kind of feeling or experience in us that makes us think, wow, everything is going to be all right. That's an eschatological kind of experience. Or this world is terrible and I long for something better. Or justice has to be done here. These are all instincts or views or kind of theological ideas that emerge from experience of music as you hear it. 
Stephen Davies is a New Zealand academic, uh, not as far as I know religious, who writes about the relationship between evolution and the aesthetic. He's intrigued with the question, what value does art, for instance, music, have for human beings in the context of evolution? For instance, how does art contribute to the survival of the fittest? What advantage is it that we make beautiful objects rather than just practical objects? Or is art just an accident or a byproduct of evolution, a vestige of some other evolutionary project that's going on, and it really doesn't have any of the meaning and power that we usually ascribe to it? Well, in his very thoughtful book, The Artful Species, Davies argues that expertise in art of any form, be it landscape painting, hip-hop music, or ballet, or cartooning, or lovely singing we had here this evening, this expertise in an art form is in fact a way of proving our fitness and therefore our mateworthiness of helping us evolve as, as a species by favouring talent over no talent, whatever that artistic talent may be. Reminds me of Napoleon Dynamite in the movie. Is, is the way to get girls to have skills. So that talent in music plays some sort of evolutionary advantage. In fact, music's role in human improvement is becoming increasingly clear and well-documented in the sciences. Here in Australia, the music educator and academic Anita Collins has written recently in her book, The Music Advantage, about the value of learning music. And I'm sure this is a significant part of uh, curriculum here. Um, the value of learning music, as well as listening to it, in all human developmental stages. It improves our cognition. It helps with language learning. It gives better emotional balance and it aids brain health. It's a good thing for us. I find this idea, there is a value in the expertise in the arts, an attractive alternative to the postmodern view that order, meaning and the sublime are simply byproducts or what the evolutionary biologists call spandrels, it's a great word, spandrels of the ultimate chaos of the world. Again, in the eloquent words of David Bentley Hart, the residue of an absolute disorder. On that view, chaos will eventually win, and the orderliness and pleasurableness of the world are merely illusions. Quote again from him, a reflective interval that still never arrests the underlying beat of indifference. But Davy's approach gives us something different in that one's art behaviours, as he calls them, might contribute to a meaningful journey for you as a human being and us as a human community. We might even be traveling, striving towards discovering a destination, as Christians believe. Art forms such as music are helping us to get there, helping us explore and express who we are as individuals and as communities, generating culture, generating meaning, generating purpose. Such behaviors, writes Davies, are touchstones of our humanity, both puzzling and magnificent, and they include our commitment to spirituality and religion. So in that first half of the lecture, I hope I've established the power of art, music in particular here, to freight an enormous cargo of meaning, to express human yearnings and strivings, and perhaps to move human beings in a direction of fulfillment, self-understanding, and understanding where the world is heading. Two musical artists that have done this for me across the past 35 years or so are the singer-songwriter Bono, real name Paul Hewson of the band U2, and Nick Cave, uh, two very different artists, very different souls, who in different ways and with different outcomes have meant a lot to me in understanding the place of music and the spirit. So let me explain. First to Nick Cave. Nick Cave is now a tremendously famous and lauded Australian songwriter, performer, novelist, essayist, 
and a cultural hero to many. His artistic work began with the seminal Melbourne post-punk band The Birthday Party. He has now nearly 50 years of creative output, which is really quite something. That work across those 50 years is replete with themes of God, religion, fallenness, divine and earthly love. For those of you who don't know any of his work, I thought I'd give you a couple of tasters. First song you might not know, it's from about 1982. The second song I suspect you will have heard somewhere, it's from 1997. I don't believe in an interventionist God. I know, darling, that you do. I don't know what you make of that. I don't know how many of the lyrics you could make out, but a chanting, rhythmic, religious kind of vibe to the song. One line over and over and over again. Second song, a lament, a, a very intense lament with faces crying um, as he sings of his convictions. Both of these songs are biblical in theme. The first song is called City of Refuge, which riffs on the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 20, where such cities are set up so people who have accidentally murdered others can flee there for refuge. Um, you better run to the city of refuge. That's the refrain you're hearing over and over again. You better run, you better run, you better run to the city of refuge in this menacing, desperate voice, aware that such sins are hard to escape. It's a great blend of deep theology and post-punk rage and energy. That formed the shape of much of Kay's first 15 years of songwriting, that kind of rageful, energetic, he calls it Old Testament kind of work. Then something changed. Uh, his mode changed and he went a bit ballady and produced several albums of much more quiet but equally intense music. And this song with its lyric, I don't believe in an intervention squad. It's probably one of the bravest lyrics that you've ever heard from a pop star straight into the camera, expressing their lack of faith in that way. Um, especially the respect shown for presumably his girlfriend. I don't believe in an intervention squad, but darling, I know you do. And the conversation goes from there. In the late 1990s, Cave gave a lecture that's been published in several forms and known by the title, The Secret Life of the Love Song. And I want to read you a slightly long quote from it to help understand what he believes is the power of the song. So he says this, though the love song comes in many guises, songs of exaltation and praise of rage and despair, erotic songs, songs of abandonment and loss, they all address God for it is the haunted premise of longing that the true love song inhabits. It's a howl in the void for love and for comfort, and it lives on the lips of the child crying for his mother. It's the song of the lover in need of their loved one, the raving of the lunatic supplicant petitioning his God. It's the cry of the one chained to the earth and craving flight, a flight into inspiration and imagination and divinity. The love song is the sound of our endeavours to become godlike, to rise up and above the earthbound and the mediocre. This marvellous and moving passage, Cave makes it clear that a love song is rarely just a love song. It's a cry for connection, a despair at disconnection, an elevation of the importance of relationships up to the love of the spiritual. It's a human being singing, there's more to life than this, and I'm, I'm so close I can nearly taste it. Cave's yearning here has not been fulfilled. 
for him. He remains unconvinced of the reality behind the yearning. He doesn't believe in the God who is involved in the world, involved in his life, a God who loves him. He doesn't, he doesn't believe it. He's said it many times. But he believes that the beauty of a love song takes you oh so close and leaves you wanting more. In his Nobel Prize lecture, the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn ponders what his countryman Dostoevsky meant when he quipped that beauty will save the world. He decides that beauty is the thing that is pre-political, pre-philosophical, pre-rational. Out of the famous three Aristotelian transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness, beauty is the one that does the convicting. Selznitskin writes, the whimsical, the unpredictable, the unexpected branches of beauty will make their way through and in this way perform the work of all three. In another song by Nick Cave called Nature Boy, he quotes this line, that beauty will save the world. And in the song, it comes out of the mouth of a father addressing a young son who's just watched the evening news. And the news is full of terrible things, as we all know. In the song, the, the news is described as some ordinary slaughter and some routine atrocity, which I think of every evening when my eight-year-old son is watching the news and worrying about Ukraine. Anyway, the lyric says, my father said, don't look away. You've got to be strong. You've got to be bold now. He said that in the end, it is beauty that's going to save the world now. Well, Cave takes this line to write a wonderful, whimsical, cheeky love song. Um, it's the only song I know that rhymes the words hysteria and wisteria. Okay. About a girl that he observes at a flower show, hence the wisteria. But the deeper connection is apparent in the song, even in the whimsy, as Solzhenitsyn would say. The transporting experience of beauty, the observation, the experience of beauty provides the meaning in an otherwise threatening and terrifying world. And yet that beauty falls short of the revelation of God. Cave's song is not a song of praise. It's not a Magnificat. Let me turn then to Bono in contrast, the lead singer of U2, who has spent a lifetime transforming his Bible reading into songs that are loved around the world. I know not everyone loves Bono now, but I'm just going to speak as if you do. I'm always surprised that people are surprised to hear that Bono's a Christian. I mean, it might be the swearing, the smoking, the the drinking that kind of confuses people, but his well of creativity is the scriptures. And most of his songs since 1980 are actually directed towards the Christian God in one way or another. Bono's memoir will come out later this year, where he summarizes his memoir as One Pilgrim's Lack of Progress, which I really like. And yeah, that confirms again the Christian shape of his imagination that he thinks that way. But the constant theme throughout his work is the attempt, the fumbling attempt, to sing a song that is worthy of the Creator. I'm sure some of you will know this early song, Gloria. I try to sing this song, I try to stand up, but I can't find my feet. I try, I try to speak up, but only in you I'm complete. This is a rock band from the 1980s singing a song called Gloria, setting the tone really for 40 years of output. This essential humility before God, a God before whom Bono does in fact kneel, drives his creative experience. Now that may sound like a poor recipe for art, but for Bono, it actually generates love songs, laments for the state of the world, joyful and even silly celebrations of humanity, protests at God's apparent silence, such as the profound song, Wake Up Dead Man, directed towards a dead God, and all manner of ex exploration of musical forms. In contrast to Nick Cave, Bono's songwriting is a response to a belief in the reality of God. That God is sometimes still distant, sometimes elusive, but nevertheless real to him. And yet the power of the song for Bono is more than an expression of faith. It's in fact a leg up to look through the window at faith, perhaps even feel what faith is like. 
the famous song 40, it's called 40 because it's from, it is Psalm 40. It's a, it's a sung psalm and used to conclude all of U2's concerts in the 1980s, has the refrain, I will sing, I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song to the Lord who's rescued me out of the darkness of the pit. It's pure gospel. And it's amazing to hear 50,000 people gathered in an auditorium at a U2 concert at the end of the concert singing, I will sing, I will sing a new song. How long, how long, O oh Lord, will I sing this song? How many of them know it goes back to the yearning of King David as he led Israel waiting for redemption? You know? And they're singing it in unison at the end of the concert, believers or not. Bono's philosophy of songwriting insists that the power of a song can communicate even to those who are antagonistic to its meaning. The power of a song can communicate even to those who are antagonistic to its meaning. The song is a shared human experience of elevation, beauty, or something else, taking us close to the truth and the goodness, the beauty doing the work to get you towards the truth and the goodness, even if it might not take you all the way on the final journey. One of my uh, favorite Bono lyrics is in the song City of Blinding Lights. Essentially, this is a love song. It's already a spiritual vehicle, remember, if Nick Cave's right about love songs, that they're all kind of directed towards God in some way. This is essentially a love song, and the song ends with an expression of what theologians call common grace. See if you can work out what I mean when you just hear this one-minute clip. Thank you, America. Obviously, that was at uh, President Obama's inauguration concert. I'm not being political here. An amazing concert at the feet of Abraham Lincoln. But the song, in case you missed it, Bono repeats the phrase he wants you to hear at the end by sitting down on a step there so you can concentrate. The more you know, the less you feel. Some pray for, others steal. Blessings are not just for the ones who kneel, luckily. And he repeats it, luckily. This is the idea of common grace in the Christian vision of things, that Bono's spiritual generosity here comes from a view that in music, even those who are far away can come close to the experience that the believers have, because in God's generosity, he's created a world that provides that experience regardless of the recipient's attitude. You still get elevated hearing the song. You still think something important is going on when you sing Psalm 40 at the end of a concert, even if you don't believe it. Because in God's generosity, he's created a world that provides that experience, regardless of the recipient's attitude. Common grace, the common experience of the wonders of life, the gift of existence, the senses, the emotions, the logical, the scientific, they're all part of the beauty of living, given generously to everyone. Perhaps the best known U2 song that embodies this spiritual potential is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm, no, I'm sure many of you know exactly that song. It perplexed many Christians when it was released because it seemed like a song of doubt rather than belief. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Are these U2 guys on board or not? But that misses the point of the song. It's a song yearning for the final destination of human beings, that longing for the kingdom to come. And yet it recognises we're not there now. We're looking for the light on the horizon. We're waiting for the final revelation of how things will be, waiting for our purpose, our telos, our destiny to be made known. The song with its almost jaunty tempo and singability is irresistible. Even if you don't necessarily take to heart its sentiments, you still sing it with some kind of meaning. It means something to you. And for heaven's sake, it's now on the lips of every child who has watched the film sing too through the kind of mouth of a lion. And Bono's fine with that because his belief in the power of the song to open up in people an experience of what faith 
might feel like, as he writes another song, in another song, Beautiful Day, what you don't know, you can feel somehow. He believes in the power of a song to open up people to experience of what faith might feel like. This, in my view, is the value of art, to resonate with reality, with the creation, the harmony mundi, the direction that things are moving, and the meaningful journey of humanity towards some sort of destination and solution. So to conclude, I'm here tonight to sell you on the power of a song. It's the power of art to be more than accidental, not a spandrel, not mere entertainment or just diversion. The veil between the physical world and the spiritual world is a thin one, and music and art tear it in places. It doesn't surprise me that the end of the Christian story involves a lot of singing. In the final book of the Christian Bible, book of Revelation, there's an image of Jesus as the slaughtered but resurrected lamb. If you're a Bible reader, you'll know it. And he's being urged to bring an end to history by opening the scroll. No one else can open it. The scroll contains the secret to the end of history. The lamb's urged to do so by a, a veritable choir of creatures and saints who are all singing a dramatic song to him. He's the only one worthy of the task they're singing. Worthy, worthy is the lamb. And then they're joined by a kind of mosh pit of angels described as myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands singing in full voice in Revelation 5. And then after that, the passage really goes bonkers to claim that every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea starts singing, wanting this to happen in this kind of wild apocalyptic hymn to the greatness of this lamb. And it reaches a crescendo and then they collapse in worship. And that's the point at which the power of the song to connect with the divine has fulfilled its purpose. Thank you. Well, thank you, Greg, for taking us on such a rich and diverting journey through different ideas, songs, different artists along the way. Over the past uh, half an hour or so, Greg's given us much to think about, how music is a means by which the creator can communicate with the creator. We've been challenged to consider how music can enable us to look forward with hope and optimism to the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth. And on a deeper level, the harmony and rationality of music, its meaningfulness, order and beauty, challenge our materialist vision of reality that sees everything as merely random and meaningless. And Greg has set out for us how music is one way in which we experience something that is transcendent rather than purely imminent. And then, of course, more specifically, he's given us his reflections on the music and lyrics of Nick Cave and Bono. Two very different artists on one level, but on another level united by a common desire to reach out and touch the infinite if such a thing exists. I was um, watching a movie over the holidays, one of the weirdest ones I've ever seen, which really sort of commandeered a similar theme. It was called Synecdoche, New York. Just try saying that a few times. Synecdoche, New York. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a dramatist and he's trying to create something. He says, I think I've got it. And they go, no, it's not there. I think I've got it. It's not there. Spoiler alert. I think I've got it. And then he dies. Never gets it. It's unreachable somehow, but somehow music potentially gets us closer. As you can tell, Greg's knowledge of this area is vast, broad, and um, he's very capable of engaging with lots of different aspects of what we've been talking about. It's just been fantastic. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Founders Lecture Series. For more information about Innerborough School and Community, visit www.innerborough.newsouthwales.edu.au. 
and hit follow on the Innerborough Podcast channel for a range of upcoming content.